Listener Production. Elizabeth Robinson has been able to see and sense the invisible from a very young age. Her work with people in the afterlife reminds us that there is no need to fear death as we are all infinite and eternally connected by unconditional love. In this intimate conversation, Elizabeth and I go on a spiritual journey. We speak about where we go when we die, how to make the most out of our time on earth and what the meaning of life really is. There have been a number of people, many, many people now who've come to me from what we tend to refer to as an afterlife. I think it's a continued life. One of the things they tell me is it's not about striving and driving. It's about the simple, meaningful moments that we have, that we share with those we love. They're the things that are the most remembered on the other side. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Elizabeth Robinson is a gifted intuitive coach, counsellor and author of the book There Are No Goodbyes. At just 28, Elizabeth would begin an extraordinary journey of spiritual and personal transformation that would not only change the way she lived and worked, but change the way she perceived the world within and around her. Over a decade later, Elizabeth is able to use her unique and powerful abilities to communicate with those in the afterlife, to create a remarkable new platform for coaching others to transcend barriers and create the life they love. There's a beautiful quote in A Course of Miracles that really encapsulates the discussion that I want us to have today. If you knew who walked beside you in the path that you have chosen, fear would be impossible. Elizabeth, you hold a beautiful bridge between this life and the afterlife. I would love for people today to be able to discover more about what their life's potential is and what happens when we die. Sarah, you know, I think most people that I meet in the world don't really realise that there is a dynamic panorama of other worlds around us. And now that I can see, now that I have woken up and that's been unveiled to me, I see through to the other side where we go after we uh, finish our schooling and our learning and growth here on earth. It is the most impactful way of living, the most dynamic, the most meaningful way of living. And at first, it is almost crazy making because we are led to believe that there's only what we can measure around us. And so we have this fear of being alone. I often say to people, it's like Harrods on a sale day sometimes, you know, because we have a myriad, a smorgasbord of people and beings around us that are loving and helping us through the trauma and through the challenge, heading towards our greatness and the expression of our greatest life. You had this from such a young age. If I quote from your book, There Are No Goodbyes, while playing, I'd often feel the presence of someone watching me and would suddenly stop and feel overwhelmed by a creepy familiar knowing someone else was there someone I didn't know, yet when I slowly turned my head and dared to look, everything was normal. How did you get your mind around the fact that you weren't 
just imagining these things? Well, I think that you can't cognitize it as a child. And certainly we know that many children in every country have these abilities to see beyond the veil or to see the dreamscape, as I call it. So I had a little friend called Sally who was a school friend of mine and she lived in a very historic home as I did just up the street in my hometown. And we would play in another historic home. And one day I saw a woman and I felt the stare. We know now that there's, you know, scientific evidence about being stared at and how most people feel a sense of presence when someone's looking at them. So I turned around on this one day and I was captivated and sort of mesmerized by this woman from the house staring at me and her hair was up in a bun and she had a high collar and she was staring at me, staring back at her. And I was curious, but I knew that there was something different about me. This has an otherworldly feeling to it. It was not explained to me. And when I told my mother, she used to tell me that I had the greatest imagination because she was worried as to what I was seeing. So I really didn't integrate that experience on a psychological level because I just sort of compartmentalized it, put it somewhere and just held tight into that experience in secret. And I think that my friends knew, not that I can remember what they used to say, but I remember one boy at high school used to tease me about what I could see. But in the homes I'd go into, in my home, I'd get a feeling, I'd be scared, I'd be scared of going to bed at night, and I'd be scared that I was sensing someone there that I couldn't see physically. So when did it change from you being a frightened child to being okay with this? Yes, I think that the problem back when I was a little child growing up in my teen years is that we had a lot of television and film that shows us a reality that's very scary and it couldn't be further from the truth. So recently I was sitting in my home and I wasn't really thinking of anything or doing anything. I had been working with people around the world in my consulting practice and I was just sort of resting into the moment and then all of a sudden I felt someone touched the top of my arm and I could see these two incredible hands of an angel and I knew straight away it was an angel and I could see the white robe and I could see these hands and the overwhelm for me was the level of compassion that that angel had for me, the level of love and compassion. But I stood up and I walked into my kitchen for a moment because I was so overwhelmed. We just don't know this extraordinary love and extraordinary compassion that is available to us because I think there are very few people that can embody that. So waking up and taking off the glasses that were frosted over and becoming conscious to what the greater reality was for me was really realizing and recognizing with the fullness of heart that what is there is there for our greatest becoming. Why do you think that you have the ability to see angels and other spiritual beings and people like myself don't? Yes, look, I was a reluctant messenger, really. I had some profound experiences when I was in my late 20s after I had my daughter, Jessica, who's now in her late 20s. For example, I just want to share with you how full on it was to awaken to this. And I think a lot of people have the perception that someone like myself was sort of airy-fairy and, oh, we're reading books on all this stuff. That wasn't how it was for me. I was hauled into spiritual boot camp. 
I think that what happened to me was very real. It wasn't something flimsy. You know, it was something very, very pungent. And that had an effect on my life. It had an effect on my husband at the time, on the reality that he was a businessman and entrepreneur. And I didn't really connect with his life anymore. I was connecting with this internal dynamic experience and I thirsted to know more. I committed myself to knowing more because it was so profound. How did you know that what you were experiencing was part of going into another life? How did you not know that you were going mad? Who did you speak to about it? Well, I have colleagues around me. So I've had years now, 30 years of experience. I worked in psychiatry at the time. I was working in uh, restorative medicine, rehabilitation medicine. And so I had access to colleagues and friends. And I used to say to them, what do you think this is? You know, it wasn't that I said, oh, look, there's a past life. I was saying, what the hell is this all about? So the reason that we know it's not madness is because I was functioning normally in every other facet of my life, except I was seeing things that weren't supposed to be real. My colleagues knew something was happening to me and they all were very interested in spirituality or esoteric sciences. One of them worked as a psychiatrist for the military (laughs) in Australia. So, you know, these were people that I approached, high, high level people. And then eventually I met Professor John Mack who is a Harvard psychiatrist. So, you know, these these are very credible people that I said, look, do you think I'm going crazy? Because it feels like that. But people who actually are psychotic don't think that they're going crazy. Yeah. They actually don't doubt themselves. So, Elizabeth, from what you've learned from speaking to people in the afterlife, why do you think we're on this earth today? There have been a number of people, many, many people now who've come to me from what we tend to refer to as an afterlife. I think it's a continued life. You know, most of us are going around our day in these habitualized processes and making choices from subconscious material from our childhood that would have us hijacked to the greater truth. So we're sort of choosing the same thing all the time and we're resting into the safety of that. So one of the things that most people don't think about is what happens after we die. And most of the time, therapists, mainstream therapists, doctors, they don't talk about the spiritual dimension. So they don't talk about what their thoughts of the other side are or what they think they might be facing. And it's sort of hush-hush in our society. It's like a no-go zone. And yet I have found actually that one of the staples that I seem to get from the afterlife is that the driving and the striving that we do in our limited view as someone who feels they're not enough and is striving to be more and driving ourselves, we don't think we're enough. And so we're driving and striving. One of the things they tell me is it's not about striving and driving. It's about the simple, beautiful, meaningful moments of laughing, walking down the street, you know, going out to dinner and we get in convulsive laughter, you know, choosing to play a game with our child and reach out to someone we love and have a beautiful, meaningful conversation. They're the things that are the most remembered on the other side. And interestingly, Sarah, alongside that, they're the things that we push aside in our day-to-day world. So one of the main things they tell me is small, meaningful moments and that we're here to evolve, that it's a self-evaluation, that it's an evolutionary 
process, that we're here to learn and to become all we can be, meaning that we can love like we've never known love, that we can heal each other with the most exquisite, palpably healing gifts that are transmitted from the other side, from the angels, from a loving source beyond what we can measure. You point this out in your book. I just find it so fascinating. Quote you directly, before you choose a life, you actually plan where and when and who will be with you. So you choose your family, where in the world you live and kind of create what time frame you take to learn the things you need to learn. Do we choose every person that comes into our life before we go into our earthly bodies? I think that we choose quite a number of them. There are times you might have had this experience, I have it often, that I'll look at someone or someone will just briefly come into my life and I'll look at them and think, I know you, but I have no idea where I know you from. And we get that knowing and we meet people that we might know for a while. So I think that there are some things that are very, very planned and some things that are loosely planned because it really is about our choice making. Most of us make choices from an unconsciousness through habits and learned experiences. So when we are coming into this lifetime, it is deeply purposeful. That's what I've been told. And it's for a reason to grow and to understand our capacities, to choose joy, to choose love and compassion. And that's a really hard gig in our world to grow empathy through our interactions. Most people don't do empathy. Most people don't know that. A lot of people do sympathy. Empathy is walking in the shoes of another person. And in the afterlife, every conversation, every glance, every interaction is steeped in compassion, in understanding. There's no judgment. There's no criticism. There's no calculated strategic bringing someone down or using someone up. That is pertinent to this realm. And when we are really engaged in our life in a dynamic, conscious way, we can choose love and we can choose wisdom over worry. You know, we can choose to step towards and and really come into a place of vulnerability with someone because we're not fearful. We can place our boundaries well. We've healed our past traumas and we can show up as really as an illuminated being, I think. You talk about a concept in your book called life mapping. Can you explain what life mapping is? What my understanding is, is that when we depart this life, we are met in a very loving, beautiful, deeply compassionate way. There's no punishment there. There's no punishment at all. There's only love and compelling understanding and wisdom. So we're called into an area that is very sacred, and a process that is deeply sacred and non-judgmental and non-critical. And that might be called life mapping or life review. And this is the opposite to what many of our religions speak of, this sort of punitive, you know, uh, hellfire and brimstone stuff. It's not like that at all. Nothing that I've ever been shown is like that. It is the most exquisitely loving experience. So what happens is that they 
they take us to the actual experience in time. And this is kind of stretching you, I, I, I'm sure. But they're able to take the people to the actual experience. And that's why it's so raw and vivid. It's not a movie because they don't have that facility there. It is actually that they travel through time space. They're able to sort of conjure that moment. And what it is, is really like what I do for people here. So it's really being able to hold space for us to see where we might have chosen differently from an awakened perspective, how we could have consciously done things differently that would have had us arrive into the experience of ourselves that we would have so longed for or have the outcomes. Or maybe that they're showing us that, you know, if you have a mother who's been very abusive, to her child, for example, and she's been abused as a child or neglected or or abandoned in some way. And she has, you know, during her lifetime been very cruel and unkind, for example. There's only love waiting for that mother when she passes on the other side. But something might be shown to her that might be saying, what can you see now and realise that your daughter went through at that time that you might not have been able to see? And so then they discuss what could have been done differently. And then later on, that mother would go into um, a group. It's like university over the other side. And so they gather in groups sometimes during their experience and they further unpack that. And then they might choose actually to do some work um, in this realm, say in hospitals. And they come into hospitals where maybe children have been abused. So this is them then when they come back. In spirit. Yes. And they might come back in spirit form. Okay. You know, we're able to kind of have this gradual evolutionary process even on the other side. They're not gone. They're never gone. It's never that we're separate from them. They're really just evolving along beside us and able to watch over us and interact with us. How do we get the best out of this life? Like for anyone listening and they're thinking, okay, this all sounds fabulous, but, you know, they might be stuck in that same kind of story of repeating the same mistakes that they always do. How do you get out of that? Yes, because a lot of people thought, let's just do meditation every day. But those of us who've been through serious trauma, and a lot of people have trauma and traumatic events in their past. So what we've got to do really alongside that, seeking and searching and reading and questing, is actually become who we truly are, decommission the leftover debris and the coping mechanisms, the behaviours, the perceptions, the habits that we do that are actually mostly unconscious and sabotage and limit us in our way that we relate to our colleagues, to our lovers, to our partners, the choices that we make, the level of joy that we can feel, the level of presence that we can have in the world. The greatest joy is when we're present. So meditation and mindfulness is a big key, but it's not enough. We have to actually commit to a daily practice that decommissions the habits and the influences. And the particular way that I do that and the model that I created to help people do that is through working with the emotional a teen, in a teen, and the emotional child. Because most of the time we're decision-making from the wounded child and the wounded teen selves. You know, we're overgiving. A lot of people will overgive 
to their partners and their level of love and loving is to not show up, not get their needs met, or it might be to strive to be the best. And I have a lot of clients in the music industry and lawyers and people, high achievers, and a lot of them are steeped in shame. The forces behind driving them to the top are that they are finally able to feel valued. If we start with the value that we already are, the infinite value and the infinite connectedness, we are in our magnificence and we can show up as a luminary in the world. How do we take that and make it part of our everyday? So the first thing that I do when I wake up in the morning is not reach for the phone. If I do, I tell myself to put it back (laughs) because we want to arrive into a conscious awareness. We want to break our habit, not reach for the phone and come into the stillness and get in touch with our heart and get in touch with what we would like to experience for the day. And so from there, stopping into the stillness and having time during the day and just check in and see how you are, how you're feeling. What are the unmet needs? that you have, the emotional needs that just aren't getting met in your day? And could you commit to meeting those? And you might do, and what I recommend to people is asking, say there's a conversation at work that's really triggered you and you're in that neural loop, you know, and you're going over and over it. A lot of us get into this neural loop, which is old trauma. And we're just playing over that emotion over and over and that scenario. So we can stop into the stillness and be willing to ask, what emotional age is the part of me that's feeling really, really in a lot of pain right now? And be prepared for the answer. Because what you'll find is that you'll see your teenager self or your child self in the school uniform and you'll see them crying or you'll see them so wanting acceptance from that person. So it's making time and then we can place a call, send a text message to our partner and say, I'm sorry, I wasn't there for you this morning. I'm thinking of you. And that is the way to decommission, to be able to really get conscious and become witness of what our emotionality is, the way that we're interacting, what is propelling us to do so and how can we fix that? What is your definition of God? I call God, God luminous consciousness. And I believe that there is a luminous consciousness and intelligence that is available to us. God luminous consciousness is highest love and compassion. What is the most important thing we should know about our journey as earthly beings? That we have choices in each moment, that we have choices at all times to be kinder, be kind to ourselves, that we have unlimited potential that is untapped within us and that we can make the choice even if others don't agree with you and don't believe in you. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is to experience an open heart. I think that we're here to have an experience of ourselves that's deeply steeped in the spirit, the soul, to be soulful. And being soulful is being loving, it's being aware, it's being awake. It's smiling at someone and being aware of the frown that we might have had on our face. It's simple things. Being great and having a great life isn't necessarily getting to the top of your field. It's actually getting out of the stress and out of the way of yourself and noticing the tree at the side of the road or noticing 
your lover there and that she needs you or he needs you. When we realize who we are as a humanity, as a human being, to commune with others in a way that imbues love and faith, that takes them out of their trauma and into a renewed hope, that is our greatest life. That was a beautiful chat. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a great pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.